So this morning, we are continuing our series, two-week series of following Jesus seriously. And it's, but as it turns out, following Jesus seriously is not as easy as you'd first think. As I said uh, last week, before I went to India, I had this sermon series, two-week sermon series planned out. I was going to focus on spiritual practices, uh, things that help us follow Jesus more faithfully, especially in this season of Lent. And I said after, when I, once I had gone to India, when I came back, or actually in India, the Holy Spirit hijacked my plan. Uh, I was planning on talking about hospitality and service, and uh, while I was there, I was moved by the way that our brothers and sisters there fast faithfully. But I was thankful that the second, ser- or second sermon that I wanted to preach on serving others, that spiritual practice of serving others, had made it through. That that's what we're going to be talking about today. Until I started studying this week. And it has become uh, way more challenging than I thought. This week, I have been disrupted, I've been challenged, and I've been convicted. First, I've been disrupted as I've been studying and reflecting and even fasting myself and growing uh, through fasting, how God has taken a wrecking ball to all the stuff I thought I was learning. And as reading this text from Isaiah, which we're going to read in a moment, when the Jesus, or sorry, uh, Lord speaking through Isaiah says, cry out, cry out to these people, don't hold back. Cry out to them like a shofar or like a trumpet, it says in our text. Like a shofar horn, tell my people of their sin and of their rebellion. And it totally uh, changed what I was thinking. And I also got me a little bit afraid because now I'm thinking like this is going to be the worst sermon series ever because one week I tell you how great it is to fast and how important it is for us to recover that. And then I read Isaiah and he starts talking about the trouble with fasting, especially when we don't do it faithfully. And like I said, I've been challenged by this passage. I've been challenged because I've often been taught and have taught others that everything begins with our relationship with Jesus and that out of that we overflow and that we bless others if we have some overflow to come at all. And this passage has been challenging me in that. And I'll explain that in a bit. The other thing, too, is it's convicted me. Because uh, before I started studying this week, I was thinking to myself, you know, I've just been to India to serve and to minister to our brothers and sisters there. Each day I get up to pray. I am doing daily devotions. Um, going to, actually not even going to, I'm leading a Bible study in our house. Kind of doing all the right things, Lord. And then I read this passage from Isaiah, and I start wondering, you know, am I... Am I even getting a passing grade? Am I even doing what I should be doing? Because I realize as I'm reading Isaiah this week that God's first choice, his chosen fast, to use his words, is serving others, setting free the oppressed, sharing food with the hungry, clothing those who are naked and providing shelter for those who are homeless. This passage has been a game changer for me. And maybe some of you are wondering, you know, Jason, what happened? What passage are you even talking about? Maybe you're even hesitating a little bit to get into this with me because you're, like, rightfully so, wondering, like, man, what, did you, what were you reading? But the thing is, we want the truth. 
as a church, as a people of God, we want the truth. We don't want to just go through the motions. And we certainly don't want to delude ourselves into thinking that we are faithfully following God, doing everything that God wants us to do when really we're not. And we definitely don't want to put our piety over service, that we get so focused on our personal relationship with Jesus that we aren't actually helping people in our church or in our community. So let's take a look at this passage together. If you would open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1 to 12. Before we read this, I also want to tell you, uh, for so, those of you who don't know who Isaiah is, Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the year, uh, well, he called, was called to the prophetic ministry in 740 BC. So that's 740 years before Jesus. And he was also a prophet in the city of Jerusalem, modern day Israel. <clears throat> and at that time, Israel was split into two. There was the northern kingdom and the southern and Isaiah lived at the time when the, the Assyrian Empire came from the north and took over the northern part of Israel. And so he saw a part of Israel, this, this country that he loved, this country that he saw was God's chosen people, he saw part of it taken off into exile. And so the first part of Isaiah verses 1 to 39 are speaking to the people before, Israel, before exile, before they are destroyed. And the second part, verses four, or sorry, chapters 40 to 66, six, are talking about the, what happens in exile and after. <clears throat> but it's also important, too, to understand a little bit about fasting. We talked a little bit about this last week. But fasting originally was something that people did to humble themselves before God and to mourn a loss, whether it was a city that had been destroyed or someone they loved had died. Fasting was deeply personal. But then throughout time, uh, kings would call a fast as a national thing, this fast as a nation to implore God, to really ask God to, to ask God to act and to intervene. And so then fasting became a national thing, and then it became somewhat of a religious thing. And so people began to fast just as a part of a, a religious practice, and that's where things start to go wrong in what Isaiah is talking about today. So with some of that background, let's read Isaiah 58, verse 1 to 12. <clears throat> So this is the Lord speaking. He says, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. And this, is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that which you call a fast a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? 
when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then, then your light will, will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide your ways. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and dwellings. It's the word of the Lord. So the first thing that I realize as I'm studying this passage is God grabs our attention. He disrupts our lives. And we regularly need disruption. We need to be disrupted. See, we tend to normalize life to cope with life. It's what we do. It's how our brains work. It's how they were created. We look at life and we try to discern patterns. We try to make routines because they make life easier. I mean, think about your morning routine. Imagine if every morning, rather than just getting up and putting the coffee on and eating your breakfast and brushing your teeth, your normal routine, imagine if you had to figure out every morning what you were going to do. Just the energy it would take for that. It would burn off energy before you even started the day. It's why we make routines. They help us live more efficiently. They free up our mind to think about other things. The last uh, year or so, I've been working out more. And when you work out, uh, if you're anything like I used to be, I would set a routine, a certain set of exercises that I would do every time that I went. Well, that's great because it's easy. You don't have to think about it. But the trouble is you see some short-term gains and then things kind of plateau or even decline a bit. And so this last year while I've been working out, I've been doing it differently. Each day is different. The workout is different. And so I am constantly sore. <laughs> like even today, I am sore from my workout. But the thing is, that's how you grow. When you have the routine, the same thing you do every day, you don't grow. Think about this in our lives. Think about how much we grow or how little we grow when life is easy, when everything is just going along according to routine. We might grow a little bit. But think about that compared to when life, when you face a crisis, when you have to go through something difficult. Think about how much more you grow then when all of your routines are disrupted. We need disruption. And this morning, I hear God disrupting us. He says, shout it out. He says, don't hold back. Don't hold back. Shout it out like a trumpet, like a shofar horn. If those of you don't know what a shofar, it's a ram's horn that they would blow through to, to bring the people in for a festival. He's saying, make it loud. Tell the people of their rebellion and of their sin. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> Lord, we, we are following you the best that we can. 
Lord, this week we've been praying. This week we've been doing our devotions. This week we even gathered in a small group. This week we even fasted as a church together. Are you saying these words to us? Well, the thing is, God was speaking these words to Israel, and Israel thought that they were doing everything right too. They needed disruption. God challenged their delusions. We need to be challenged. See, Israel had got into their spiritual routines, but they weren't growing. Listen, look at uh, verse 2 with me. Verse 2 to 5. Listen to this carefully. He says, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They are actually asking for just decisions and even seem eager for God to come near them. You see, the thing is, they're doing a lot of right things. It says day after day they're seeking him. They're genuinely seeking God. They're eager. Lord, we want to know your ways. We want to know how to follow you. We want your just decisions. We want you to be near God. But they do all of these things, and this is the key part, like or as if they were a nation doing what is right. The point here is they're doing all these things, and yet they're not working it out in their life. They're doing all these spiritual practices, but they aren't living faithfully. They have all the right religious, they're going through all the right religious motions, but they're not working it out in their lives. To use that phrase, they were so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. And then, then they had the gall to complain to God. Look at it in uh, verse 3. They say, why? Why have we fasted and you have not seen God? Why have we humbled ourselves, but you don't notice? And you have to ask, have they really humbled themselves? Is it really humbling yourselves when you come to God saying, I'm doing all these things, why aren't you responding? Why aren't you doing what I've asked you to do, God? I see them as this people who had been praying, putting all their prayer tokens in the giant vending machine in the sky, and then angry because nothing was coming out. They're saying, God, we've done our part. We've put our prayers up. We've gone a few days without food. Where are you? Why aren't you doing what we asked you to? See, the thing is, when we make sacrifices, it's human nature to then think we kind of deserve to indulge ourselves. You know, God, I've been making this sacrifice over here. Can't you kind of come through over here? He says, this is how you fast. When you fast, you delight yourself. You do everything else, you actually delight yourself. Not only that, but you treat your workers horribly. He says here in verse 5, he says, uh, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. So rather than a fast that leads to faithfulness and humbling themselves, and peace, it actually leads to arguments and fist fights. That's what their fasting is like. 
And so it's no surprise that Yahweh says, you can't fast like this and expect your voice to be heard on high. God is not impressed. The first chapter of Isaiah, the first chapter of this book that we're studying, God is speaking through Isaiah, and he says to the people, he says, you do all of these things, all of your new moon festivals and all of your religious worship, it is a burden to me. I am weary from it. Think about that for a second. The Lord God, the creator of everything, of the heavens and the earth, gets exhausted from all of their religious practices, all their religious hoopla. He's not impressed. And when he's talking about the fast here, he says, is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? For you to not, for you to skip a few meals and then treat each other horribly? Now, if any of you are like me right now, I'm looking for a crack that I can crawl into and hide. Because I came to this passage this week thinking, I'm doing okay. I'm praying regularly. I'm doing daily devotions. Meeting a small group. I've been fasting. And then the wrecking ball comes in. And challenges my delusion. God was certainly challenging the people of Israel. And I know that some of us here are challenged this morning. But thankfully, God doesn't stop here. He has more to say. He starts telling us the kind of fast that he does desire. If you would read chapter, or sorry, read verse 6 and 7 with me. It's right here at the bottom. He says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? This is the sort of fast, this is a sort of devotion that God chooses to serve the least and the lost. This is what God is desiring, that we break the chains of injustice, that we untie every yoke of oppression, that we open the gates, we open the door, the cell door, and let the oppressed out. That rather than just skipping a few meals, we share our food with people who need it. That we shelter people, that we invite in the people who are homeless to share a meal together. The people who don't have enough clothes to wear, we provide clothes for them. This is the sort of fast that God desires. Or said differently, this is the sort of daily devotion that God desires. The daily devotion that God desires is that we would share our food with people in our community who don't have enough. The Bible study that God desires is that we would care for people in our community who are struggling. This week I'm convicted that all of my personal piety God desires something different. The kind of devotion God desires is that we would serve other people. 
And I know it's messy. I know it's going to cut into our lives, into our hobbies, into our shopping, and into our coffee. But that's what God desires. This is the sort of devotion God has chosen. This has been challenging for me. Like I said, I've always been taught and have taught that if we will focus on our relationship with Jesus, then everything else will work out. I thought of it like this. If we will pray and devote ourselves to God, then God will bless us. And usually it looks something like this. Give some prayers and then God really blesses. The thing is, I've often thought about is if if I will spend my time with God, then hopefully I will overflow a little bit and have something that I can kind of bless some other people with. But the main thing is, Lord, fill up my cup, fill up my cup, fill up my cup, so then hopefully I have a little bit extra I can devote to, sh- to blessing others. Now, we want to be careful, too, because we know that we can't just focus on serving others. There are non-Christian organizations that do that. And we also, I mean, I've seen Christian organizations who do this badly. And they get so focused on serving others that people begin to resent it or they become legalistic about it. And that's not what we want to happen. But we can't just stay here either at focusing on our piety and our relationship with Jesus. That we don't become so heavenly minded that we're actually no earthly good. That we get stuck in this pious loop. Because ultimately this is self-focus. And I see it in our culture. Constantly spending time with God so God will fill us up. The Holy Spirit has challenged me this week. That we have to do both. But actually, I've always thought of it as, you know, my relationship with God, that's the main thing. My daily devotions, uh, prayer, fasting. And then if I have time, serve others for extra credit. But I think of serving others as the icing on the cake. I know, me too. But serving others isn't icing on the cake. Serving others is the cake. Helping people in our community is not the extra credit. It is the devotion. It is the bread and butter. It is what we do. That serving others is the kind of devotion God desires. That loving others is the kind of prayer that God wants us to pray daily. And some of you might be thinking, you know, Jason, this sounds a lot like works righteousness. Are you trying to say we have to earn our way? That's not what I'm saying, no. No, we are saved by grace. That stands. But I think that sometimes we get so concerned about not trying to earn our way to heaven that we, it undermines actually doing anything at all. That we say, I don't want to try and earn my way with God, and I'm not saying that either. But throughout Scripture, God says, if you want to love me, you do that best by loving others. James, in his letter, talks about this. About true religion is loving God and loving others. And actually, he says, if you wanted to say that you um, 
love God, then I'll show you by the things that I do, by the way that I help people. So we need both, devotion to God and service to others. That's faith. That's loving God. So here's the thing. If we focus on both, loving God and loving others, then we will transform lives. Hopefully some of you recognize this is what's usually on the front of our bulletins. These three things, loving God, loving others, and transforming lives. And for years, I've thought about them in this order. We start with loving God, and then if we have some extra, then we love others, and then hopefully that will be transforming lives. But I think these words from Isaiah are a prophetic word to our church, in fact, the whole Church of Canada, that we often begin here, loving God, focusing all of our attention on that. And when it comes to how do we connect with people in our community, we look at tweaking the worship or, uh, or adjusting the sermons or making our services more seeker-friendly. But you know what? My experience, maybe yours is different, but my experience is that most people around here, most people around us, they're not seeking. <laughs> we try to make our services more appealing, more seeker-sensitive. Most people around here are not seeking. They're not looking for ways to love God. And the ones that are, the people that are seeking to know, like to pursue God some way, most of them, people that I can think of, or at least many of them, are convinced that the last place they're going to find God is here in a church. I don't think they're right. But that's my experience with people I talk with in our community. Studying this passage this week has convicted me that I live my life too normal. I look too normal. And I used to do that on purpose because I wanted to show people that you can be a normal, thoughtful person and be a faithful follower of Jesus. But I realized it's not that compelling to people. That even me trying to be normal... People are just like, great, good for you. And so I'm wondering, maybe now I need to be abnormal or super normal. And what I mean by that is that if we will love others, if we will break the chains of injustice, if we will not just fast but share our food with those who don't have any, if we will shelter the homeless, then, then the light will shine forth. If we will love others, God will begin transforming lives. Then our light will shine forth. Read this last bit of this passage with me. Verse 8 to 12, the last right side. He says, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. 
You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fill. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise or will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and dwellings. This is amazing to me. If we will do these things, God will be pleased. And he says, I will be present. When we call on him, he'll show up. He'll say, here I am. God will be in a relationship with us. He said, I will answer you when you pray like this or when you do these things. And here's the amazing thing. This, living like this, will impress people. And not that we do it to impress people, but that is a great side benefit. Is that when we are living faithfully, people around us will look and say, you know, the church is doing something amazing. The church is blessing our community. Like I said, I've always thought of it in terms of our, we have to work a lot on our relationship with God and hopefully we'll have some left over to share with people. And then when we share with people, we share for a little bit and then when we get empty, we come right back and begin following our, our devoting and spending time with God again. And so I've always thought about it in this order, that we love God first, we spend most of our time there. Then if we have some left over, we love others and then we transform lives. As I'm reading this scripture this morning, I think it's actually more like this. That it's in loving others that we love God. And by loving others, we love God. And the side benefit of that is that it will transform lives. People will see it. And they'll see that faith is not just something we do because we want to be more heavenly minded here on Sunday mornings, but because we believe it will change the world. <clears throat> I was thinking of this book. We have it in our library. Uh, Gary Chapman, Five Love Languages. Has anybody here read that book? A few people. It's, I think it's over like a decade old. It's like Christians throughout the years have used it. And it talks about different ways that people express and receive love. And I was thinking about this week as I was looking at this passage. That we, generally speaking, receive love by presence or by, um, uh, by quality time that we want quality time with God, and so we spend a lot of time in devotion. But as I'm reading this passage this morning, I'm realizing that God's love language is acts of service, and not of service of him, but service of others. Which is counterintuitive, because we love God the way we want to be loved. Lord, I'm spending time with you because I want you to spend time with me, because I want you to be present. I want you to fill me up, to make me feel complete and at peace and full of life. But I hear this passage saying, if you want to love God, you do that by loving others. That loving others is the best way to love God. To speak love to God in the language that he prefers. And that's the amazing thing, is not only does loving others, not only is that the best way to love God, but that is the best way to show people around us the kingdom of God, and that transforms lives. Loving others is God's preferred way and is the most powerful way for our community. Like I said already, the, the perception of people around us is that church, Sunday morning, is a great place to go if you want to be more heavenly minded, but not really more any, any more earthly good. Generally speaking, I think people around us, they'd say like, 
this church is a great place, and you guys do great things. But on the one hand, they're saying that. But what I don't understand is why we don't see him here. And so I'm wondering, I'm convinced, that maybe they are saying that to be nice. Because Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God by the things that he spoke, the things that he taught, but also by the fact that he healed people, that he fed people, that he set free the oppressed. This is our king. This is the model that we have. This impressed people. Imagine. Imagine just for a moment what it would be like as if people thought of our church not just as the place where you go to become more heavenly minded, but as the place where you go to do amazing things in our community, to be some earthly good. I want to go to the church, this church in Balfour. I want to go to the Balfour Evangelical Covenant Church because they are doing amazing things in our, in our community. I'm not all in for that whole God thing, but I want to be a part of that church because they are changing the world. Imagine if that was people's perception of this place. I want to go there because amazing things happen there. People do supernatural things. People care for people they have no business caring for at the Balfour Church. I want to be a part of that. And then they come here, and then they ask, how do you guys do it? And then we start saying, we do this because Jesus loved us. Because Jesus saved us. Because Jesus taught us and modeled for us, this is how we're supposed to live. I'm not saying that we become a church that all we do is focus on doing things for people. That's not what I'm saying. But as I hear God speaking, this is the way that he wants us to show love for him, is by serving people. And I think that will be the most compelling in our community. And sure, people might disagree whether Jesus died and rose again, but they won't be able to refute the fact that we do amazing things in our community. This morning, we've been talking some about how this passage disrupts our lives. How it challenges the delusions we might have, thinking that we're really doing, we've got it all figured out, and it challenges us. Not only that, it's convicting. And this passage helps us see, or has helped me see, the relationship between loving God and loving others. That actually, we don't love others by spending all of our time loving God. We love God by loving others, just like this shows right here. The best way for us to love God is by loving others, and that will transform lives. So this is how I want us to respond this morning. This is what I want us to do as a church. I want us to take this idea and to not, first of all, to not put it in the I'll think about that. That's a nice thing you said, Jason. I'll think about it later. First of all, don't do that. The second thing I want us to do is take this idea of serving others, to take it out of the what I do if I have extra time, move it out of the optional category, and move it into the essential category. That serving others is just as essential to our faith as praying or reading scripture that actually serving others is God's preferred devotion.
He says here, this is the kind of fast I have chosen, that you would serve people, that you would undo injustice, that you would set the oppressed free, that you would share your food with those who are hungry, that you would bring the homeless into your home, that you would provide clothes for people who are naked. I am realizing this week, and it is convicting to me, that the best way for us to love God is to love others. By loving others, we love God best, and that will transform the lives of people around us. Amen.